Welcome back to the Taft Talks podcast, the podcast where we talk about all the goings on in the world of school psychology, education, advocacy, everything. I'm your host, Chris Ponce, and with me is nobody because I'm the only person that's doing it today. Everybody else is sick or at work or dealing with other things, but it'll be nice because we'll have a nice little tete-a-tete with my awesome guest today, Dr. Byron McClure. How you doing, man? Doing great, doing great. A little sad, your, your co-host left you hanging. That's not cool. You know, it's okay because we all know I'm the personality and the face of this uh, podcast that nobody gets to watch, um, but only <laughs> listen to. So we all know where everybody's role is on this, but it's right. cool because what we can do is we can just turn this into like a long form conversation and just have a conversation about school psychology and advocacy and just kind of things that are going on in our field and education in general. Um, you're very popular in our world. You know, and be honest with you, I've known about you for a couple of years and I stumbled upon you through Instagram. And then I found out you were coming to the task conference to present, which was awesome. Um, and then your book and all that type of stuff. And, you know, and w- when we set up these seasons and we talk about who we're going to bring on to kind of have conversations with a big thing is who are who's influential in our field and who is making a difference that may not be like the big names like the giant names and that's not an insult that's not an insult Byron like but you're you're a rising star in our world and we want to make sure that people understand and know what you're doing and where you come from and it's a little bit of behind the scenes stuff too because we know what you're currently working on but like what were the steps that got you here? You know, and that's kind of the important things for us. There's people out there like myself who look up to you and see all the awesome, badass stuff that you're doing. And we, and it sounds funny, but like, how do we, how do I do that? How do I get to that? You know, and you're incredibly motivational and you're incredibly inspiring. And that's kind of just the, the point and why we wanted you to come on here. Yeah. And I appreciate those, those words, man. I, I always just try to stay in my lane and do my part make a difference where I am. And I think you're right. Like I've always looked up to what I consider to be legends of school psychology, like the Charles Barrett, Celeste, Dr. Proctor. Like these are people who have paved the way for, for people like me. And I'm just trying to do my part to pave the way for, for the next up and comers. Oh yeah. And, and, and I know, I know you already know this Dr. McClure because you listen to every single one of our episodes, but, uh, but we actually had Charles Barrett on as our season finale for our last season. And we all left that conversation. Like, Jesus, I'm about like in a sports term, I'm ready to run my head through a wall for this guy. Cause he yeah, just like put us, put us on a path of like, let's just go. And he ended up being our keynote speaker two years ago at TASP. Mm-hmm. And he was phenomenal. He was just so great, but like, it's the yeah, same he's thing. Amazing. And you are, you are that next person. You're the next com- coming up that we just, we just want to hear about. So let's, let's start off with like a question. We always ask all of our guests, right? School psychology. It's a field that's completely understaffed across the States but we all somehow found it. So how did you come into our world? Sorry, how did you come into this world? It ain't my world. I have no ownership over it. But how did you yeah, come? Yeah, yeah. You, you know, it's collectively, it's, it's all of ours. My journey into the field of school psychology was a coincidental. And see, I, I want to be careful in my words because it was divine. And I'm careful to say I didn't fall into it. I believe I was called into it. When uh-huh. I say that, like after undergrad shout out to hampton university uh the the real hu i went to i was supposed to go out to california and a week before i was supposed to go out to cali like something just didn't sit right in my spirit and i ended up switching 
and my dad, my dad had a connection um, to one of the professors out in Abilene, out in West Texas. And I was like, man, I'm not going to, to Abilene, but I didn't have any other options. I was either going to stay at home or I was going to be short. And so I was like, all right, let's see what can happen. I applied and 48 hours I was accepted cool, and I got fast. money. Yeah, it was extremely fast. Just off the strength of social capital, like who who my dad knew. And he was able to get me into to the university. And I also got very a, a little bit of, of money um, and I was able to go. And so 48 hours, you know, I was accepted. And shortly after that, um, me and my twin, I have an identical twin. Uh, we were we packed up my car and we left from Maryland all the way down to Abilene, Texas, and it was it was a culture shock. Um, but I went. Welcome to Texas, man. It, <laughs> it was a and that was my I think that was my first time ever being in Texas. It was wild, mm. um, literally legit a tumbleweed like rode across the car. <laughs> like this is a little on the nose here. <laughs> yeah, it was it was something, um, but. I enrolled in the clinical psychology program and I started out, I wanted to become a clinical psychologist and I started out my, my coursework. I actually enjoyed, you know, some of, some of the, the courses that I was taking. And then there was an assignment I had to do and I had to really look at, um, you know, the job prospects of a clinical psychologist. And I knew I wanted to work with uh, the African-American community and I always wanted to improve mental health. And long story short, I recognized that the demographic I wanted to work with rarely sought out counseling. And I joke and say I was having like this existential moment. I was like, I came all the way out here to West Texas. Like I, I'm not going to be able to work with the demographic I wanted to work with. And like it was divine because this lady, um, her name is Dr. Jen Shoemaker, and some people might be familiar with her. But at that time, she was the, the director of the school psych program at Abilene. And, you know, she just started having a conversation with me and saying all the right things. And one of the things that really stood out to me, she said, you know, you can work with young people and prevent problems before they become adults. And if you're concerned about having a job, being able to work with people like there are schools everywhere. <laughs> like she was just saying all the right things in the moment where I needed to hear it. And after that, I went to her office, me and uh, a good a good friend of mine, um, Bob, and we switched from clinical site to school site. I mean, that moment was my introduction to school psychology. I was like, you want me to be a school counselor? And she was like, no, school psychology. <laughs> they like, she broke it down. Did, so you're a counselor, right? No, we're not. Exactly. That's not an anti-counselor thing. It's just it's we're not. things. And it, it just shows that I had no idea what it was until that moment. And she she broke it down to me. And I hit the ground running. I switched that spring. I took you know, all the, the intro level courses. I had to take some classes in the summer. I had to play a little catch up, but yeah. I mean, that was my intro to the field of school psychology. <laughs> no, I feel you on I, my bachelor's degree is in anthropology, which means I know a lot of cool stuff that's useless to the world. Um, but it's, it's interesting, but I had the same thing. I stumbled upon our field. Um, I, was applying to clinical psychology. I'm in San Antonio, so UTSA, University of Texas San Antonio, and they had a program, but 
I was, I did not meet the pre-qualifications to get into it. Like they needed like a psychology background, which is fine. They didn't have it, but I had no research stuff and none of that stuff. And then right underneath it was school psychology. And so I clicked on that and I was like, I've never heard of this field before. So what the hell is this? And then just do research. I'm like, this is exactly what I wanted because I wanted to work with children. And I didn't, I didn't quite have the same mindset as you as like a very specific type of thing. I just knew I wanted to work in psychology and I wanted to work with children. And my wife was already a teacher at that point. So that kind of helped me. And she kind of like, yeah, go in. I met our school psychologist. I don't know what he does. That's what she said. But like, I think there'd be a great field to just kind of look into. And I've learned to love it. Like, and I never want to leave this. I love this field. It's fantastic. And but I do wonder, and, and I think it's just been a common theme amongst everybody that we've talked to about finding the field or stumbling into the field or things like that. Do you see that as like a barrier to like increasing our numbers? Because absolutely, if, I mean, the visibility of us, I mean, we can try as hard as we can, but the job is very difficult. It's very hard. It's very burdensome. But to try to be like a visual presence on a campus to try to help, like, I mean, if I get one kid at like, oh, school psychology seems all right. Let me look into that. But that barrier seems like it's very hard to overcome. And I don't know how to fix that. And I'm not, I don't know if you have, if you have the answer, Byron, it's gonna be phenomenal. But I just, it's just a thought that came to my mind as you were talking about it. Cause I was going on back in what early, late 2010s or early 2010s, right for you, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that was, we talked over a decade ago. And I don't, I'm not going to act like I have all the answers, but there are some things that school psychologists, there's some things that, that they can do. One of the things is like getting out into those school psych streets and making it known what you do. Like when I went through high school, middle school, I never knew what a school psychologist was, never heard of one. No. Um, and, you know, that's not to say that I didn't need one. I'm sure I probably did at some point. I, I just never heard of it. And that's the case for, for a lot of people. And, you know, even in my undergrad, um, I went to a historically black college. Like we'll talk about, we have conversations about clinical psychology, counseling psychology, educational psychology. Like those are talked about. And so the onus is on school psychologists to make it known what we do. And that's what I'm saying. Like we got to get out into those school psych streets and advocate for ourselves and one of the ways that we can do that is expanding our role above and beyond just testing. Like most people don't know what school psychologists do because they're locked inside of the office just testing all day. And, you know, I, I know that's more complicated than, than it sounds like. I don't just want to seem like because there's a lot of barriers. We got to talk about ratios and all those things. But at the core of it, school psychologists mainly test. And because of that, nobody knows what else we do. There's a mental health crisis right now. School psychologists should be out having conversations about mental health, about how to prevent illness, about how to, you know, provide pathways to mental health. Like school psychologists, we have to advocate about what it is, uh, what exactly it is that we do. And the reality is, like, uh, there's a lot of people that don't know. One thing that I think is cool is the social media presence of some emerging school psychologists. And like, man, there's some awesome school psychologists out there who have big social media followings and a big presence. Like those are things that will help advocate for our profession. Just little things like that. I don't think it's going to be any one effort, but it will be a collection of efforts that will let the world know who we are. Yeah. And, and some of those profiles, like, 
had like 20,000 followers. And I'm like, there's no way there's 20,000 school psychologists out there, which means other people are following you and ingesting your content, which is That's really right. good. Social media is a powerful tool for no matter what. And I definitely think it's something that can be utilized to help our field going forward. Now, it's a very interesting thing you bring up is mental health is on the rise, but we do live in Texas. And that is a thing that we kind of have to get over sometimes. And I, and I still find parents and schools having a hard time understanding that this is a very important subject that we need to like address and talk about. And I do think they're, they're coming along. And I think my district, especially that I work in, is really good about progression and moving forward. But there's a lot of districts that aren't, you know, and, you know, I've tried to advocate for school psychs to do com have conversations and little symposiums and like talks to our different campuses. And in our district, we've done a really good job. And we've always had a very good, um, amount of support behind that. But I feel like that's not always going to be the case. Have you ever had issues with at least just talking about mental health and like people being like, well, we're here about math and reading and science, man. We don't like, that's just not our problem type of thing. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons I'm happy to be on, on this podcast. I want, I'm new for, for those who are listening and might not know, I've been a practitioner in D.C. and Maryland for a very long time. After I finished in my graduate work in Texas, I went to IUP in Pennsylvania, and then I practiced um, in the DMV. So I worked about half my, my time on the Maryland side, the remaining half in uh, D.C. And then after that, um, I recently moved, depending on when you listen to this episode, I recently moved out to Texas. And so my experience as a practitioner, I, fortunately, where I was, I was able to speak on mental health and how mental illness was impacting our young people, how trauma was impacting our school community. And I was pivotal in that. That was a big part of my role. I went into it knowing that I never just wanted to solely test. I wanted to show the full scope of what we could do. And I slowly added things to my plate. And I've been fortunate um, to where I've worked with school leaders, with, you know, community partners, with parents who were receptive to the things that I was trying to do. When I went to D.C., which is, you know, it's a, a urban setting, um, inner city, uh, more progressive. Um, it was still, you know, something that I was able to do without much pushback. Where I did receive some pushback was, you know, when I started talking about restorative practices. Like, no, 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 school, no, that's too much, man. Yeah. And in that regard, it was more compliance driven. Um, it was more punitive. Um, and so coming in and talking about you want to restore things like it, it wasn't well received in, in that regard. In the context of the political aspect of it, you know, with Texas, Florida, Oklahoma, South Carolina, and the conversation of addressing mental health, discussing SEL, um, it's not as heavily politicized, at least the work that I was doing on the East Coast compared to some of these more Southern states. I am intrigued to see, you know, how I can support and, and really like move the needle because that's something that it needs to be addressed. And if we're saying there's all these issues, like we school psychologists, like we just can't let that ride. Like that's part of our role. And I'm going to advocate for that. And I'm I'm looking forward to shaking the table here in Texas. You should. And I think that's kind of an issue too. And that's maybe within our own field is because our job is so diverse in general, right? There are people who 
to be honest with you, they just don't care about that stuff. What they want to do is they just want to test. They want to do that. That's what they enjoy. So it's hard to kind of get a collective together. We'll call it a school site collective to like move forward and progress our field when some people are like, I don't, that's not really what I want to do. And I think that's, that's kind of the job of, I don't know how to say this in a nice way. This is Christopher Ponce's opinion and his opinion alone. This is not a reflection of the task board, but that's kind of the younger people's mindset coming into it is that our job has been the same. It's been very gatekeeping for a long time. How do we move that forward and how do we make that different? And we can do that by having that type of mindset, right? That we're not just testers. We're not just assessors. Consultation is a very vague term. That can mean a lot of stuff. And that can include bringing mental health to the forefront of our schools, especially post-pandemic. And I'm sure you, were, you weren't in Texas yet post-pandemic, right? No, I was still in Maryland. Still so on I'm, I'm sure it hit you guys the same way it hit us down here. Just kids come back and they just, it's hard. It's hard to come back after that type of stuff. And I'm still seeing the effects. And now I'm getting all the COVID babies who were inside for years because of where our, our society was at the time. And now they're like having to integrate in, it sounds funny, but integrate into society, but it's just really just classrooms, but they might've been one of two kids. And now they're in a class of 24 and I'm having all these issues. And now all the parents want their kids to be tested. And it's like, well, we should also give your three-year-old a chance to like learn how to be with other kids, maybe instead of like yeah. this kid is special is, has a disability, you know? But I, I do think, and I, I impress that upon my interns of like being more than just an evaluator, right? Like you're the school psychologist, you're a psychologist, be that type of person, be that advocate on a school. I don't know if, if that's kind of how do you, because uh, right, are you in schools right now? So I recently transitioned out of schools. Okay. But you've yeah. had interns in the past before though. Oh yeah, interns, practicum students, all of the above. And and that and and sorry, that wasn't to imply any anything besides just you can speak to that as well of like teaching the next generation. I think that's a very important part of our job. I don't know how you see it. Yeah, I I agree a hundred percent. I think it's it's super important. And you know, I, I did want to to follow up on, on one thing. Um, I think that's why school psychologists we have to advocate for our entire like for all of the domains for all of our practice areas of what we're capable of doing. Because if we don't, we're going to be locked within, you know, that, that one domain of just assessments and, you know, testing for special education eligibility. Mm -hmm. I also want to be clear, like there's importance of that role. Like that's the very important thing, making sure that students who are struggling are getting their academic, social, emotional needs met. Um, through that evaluation process. Not just academic though, right? It's the social, emotional, it's the mental health. It's all the things. <laughs> Absolutely. It's all of those things. And as school psychologists, we have a role in that. And we also have a role where we can support teachers. We can uh, use data to help us make uh, strong decisions. Like there's so many things that we can do in our role. And like, we, we just shouldn't be limited to one small uh, function of that. No. And it, I, something that I feel like I've, it's taken me years to kind of foster this trust in my teachers, but it's just because there's a lot of teacher turnover rate in our schools right now. There's new ones coming in. There's people who've been there a lot longer. There's people that are the same age as my parents. So they see me as a child, which is fine. I get that. And I understand that's a thing, but like coming in and knowing, you know what you know, but I know what I know too. Like, and I, I can help you. You just have to trust me. And like, 
buy into the plan, you know, like behavior, especially, right? I, I don't come from a teaching background, so I'm not ever going to come in and tell somebody how to teach a subject, an academic subject, but I can help with behavior and I can help with emotions and things like that. But you have to trust me to be able to do it, you know, and I, I that was a big barrier that I had to learn how to navigate early on in my career. But I've been on the same campuses now for seven years. And I, I have built that relationship now where they do trust like, all right, I'm going to I'm going to try what Chris is saying. Right. I may I may not believe in it, but let's give it a shot and let's see what happens from that. You know, but I think that, again, comes with our field and just a new age of school psychs coming in because I don't know who they had before me. Right. And they don't work yeah. in the same district anymore. Right. And, you know, that's that's the thing. And, you know, I I was fortunate um, to understand the importance. I might not be a classroom teacher, but I can support classroom teachers. Um, and that's where collaboration and consultation is extremely important. I think one of the issues that, you know, some some folks in, in Texas and some of, some of these more Southern states might have is, like, they think that we're asking teachers to become, like, mental health experts. And I think that's where school psychologists are like, no, let us do that. And we can support teachers. Why? Like Charles says, it's always about the children. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to, to one of the things that you said, like, I... I've been inside of the the public school setting for 13 years. And now that I've transitioned out, I'm in a unique position because I'm working with schools like all across the nation from a different vantage point. And like people are struggling in a very real way. And this is why, you know, you, you joked before, before we hopped on the call, you know, the room next to me when I was presenting a task uh, could hear and feel the energy, but I'm very passionate you know, about us using, you know, and, and bleeding the charge of this work and making a difference. Like, I believe, like, we can do this work in a very real way. I, I don't think there's anybody better than school psychologists to be leading this work. Yeah, especially in light of, like, post-Uvalde times, where it's it's very close. Yeah. And, and I speak from San Antonio, where we're very close to that, right? Like, it is not a far distance from us. I think that hit home for a lot of people in Texas, that that's getting close. Like these things are, they are happening. We can't ignore them. Mental health is a real thing. Like, let us help your kids, you know? And I still feel yeah, like there's it's some a, resistance. It's a real but, thing. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. You know, no, no, it's it's all good. I know we, we both get excited about this conversation and, you know, like it's a very real thing and whether like there's misinformation, whatever it is, like, we we see the report from the CDC that recently came out, depending on uh, when you listen to this, but we see that the trends from 2011 up until now are increasing. We see certain groups of students are more impacted. We see suicidality going up. So like whether you want to admit it or not, like these things are are happening and we have to address it. And our National Association, NAS, the National Association of School Psychologists, like says, like schools are, uh, should be the epicenter of helping to get the needs of kids met. And I believe that deeply. Absolutely. And I think this goes back to a point you talked about earlier. And I, I, this was a huge thing I wanted to make sure we talk about today, but it's the idea of diversity in our field. Right. Like, and I think that's incredibly important. And I don't, it just, I don't necessarily just mean ethnicity, but I also think, you know, males in our field too is important to kind of break down those barriers of mental health and emotions and things like that. Why do you think that's so important, Dr. McClure? 
Byron. Man, because I, I live it. Yeah, yeah, it's all good. Like I, I've lived it. You know, like I, I am. Man, I am. I remember NASP a couple years ago in Boston last year. Um, depending on when you hear this, I think that was yeah, yeah. 2021, the first one right after the pandemic, 2021, right. 2022, whenever Boston was. And I was given a presentation. It had to be like 300, maybe 500 people inside of the room. Um, it was packed. It was a feature session. And I, if you don't know, I identify as a black male and I'm presenting on equity, diversity, all of yeah. these things. And I look out at this room, the seat of school psychologists, and I'm looking for people who look like me as a black male. And I can count them on one hand. Yeah. Well, like three of us, less than five. And so you look at the the NAS membership survey, it talks about, you know, 80 plus percent, um, 80% more being white, female, Able body, like that's the demographics of our field. But then you contrast that with the growing demographics of our students, and we see that it's it's gonna be a majority minority, right? Mm -hmm. So we see increases in Hispanic students and Black students, and you know we know that we have to meet the needs of our LGBTQ students, our homeless students, our foster care uh, students. And the reality, especially in our field, like our field doesn't reflect the students that we serve. Our field doesn't reflect the students that we will serve 5, 10, 15 years from now. Exactly. So diversity is not like a nice thing to have. Like it's imperative. Why? Mm -hmm. So that as school psychologists, as practitioners, we can meet the diverse needs of our students. And that's not to knock the current school psychologists that we have, which are predominantly white, female, able-bodied people, uh, we have to be able to equip them because the numbers are short, the ratios are disproportionate. We have to equip our current workforce with the skills, the tools now so that they can meet the needs of our kids now because they need it. They need adequate school psychologists who can do their job and do it well so that they can be successful. And diversity is an extremely important part of that. And I, I think there's a bit of us, a bit of onus on us, like you're saying too, that we have to approach and we have to meet our students where they're at. And that's, that's not, not just academically or emotionally, but also culturally. And we have to have a good understanding of where they're coming from. And I think it, it even goes not even just to consultation, collaboration, but even to assessment. We have to understand that not all of our assessments are built for everybody. That's right. And that's a bit on the practitioner to kind of know and understand that going into an evaluation, right? One yeah. size does not fit all. And and I know there are certain, sorry if you're there in California, California, didn't they have something about cognitive assessment yes. or something like that? I that's can't right. remember. Is it them? Okay. Mm -hmm. Do you know more yep. about that than me? Because I don't want to speak to it if I. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And so it's a, a case, uh, a landmark case that went up to the Supreme Court. And what happened, there was a student who represented it, but there were other students as well um, who basically were given IQ scores. And at that time, they were called uh, educably mentally retarded, which basically meant they gave them this one 
IQ test, and they said that they're going to be placed in a self-contained classroom based on this IQ score. What would happen is, and shout out to Dr. Brandon Gamble, who's out on the West Coast, and he actually interviewed um, some of the, the young people at that time, which also lets you know, this isn't that long ago, right? Yeah. Some people talk about this stuff like it's ancient history. Like, no, I just had a, a conversation with Dr. Brandon Gamble and he interviewed people who were part of this landmark case. And what he found is was like, these young people would go to church and they're citing Bible verses. Like they're thriving outside of school. The long-term so memory is it... intact, right? <laughs> yeah. And so he was like, how was it that eight hours out of the school day, they're mentally... And that's what they called them back then. That was the language that yeah. they use. Now and, it's intellectually. Those in Texas, that's what we call now intellectually disabled. Intellectually disabled. And so how is it now that these kids, and we'll use more modern terminology, even before it was called like moron, right? Like yeah. we see the. I was reading, I was reading real quick. I was reading a history of school psychology book because we're all school psych nerds. And I think it used to be like idiot was like one of the, yeah. the levels. Imbecile. 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 That was, yeah. Imbecile mm -hmm. was one as well. So we have really, we've progressed somewhat, I guess. So, but sorry, I didn't mean to cut you <laughs> off, man. Go ahead. Yes. Random <laughs> yeah. school psychology, like nerd stuff. Yeah. But anyways, Dr. Brandon Gamble is having conversations with these people. We're like, no, like we are not intellectually disabled, but this one assessment is saying that we are. And so they said, Hey, like we are going to fight this, like, because we're not. And they argued it all the way up to the Supreme Court. And a ruling came out that basically said that, you know, you can't use these one data points to uh, place Black African-American kids in special education. And even to this day, you know, and there's there's terminology that's there. And so I want to be careful on what I say. Um, it's not that they're banned, but there are certain IQ tests that you cannot use. Um, to determine eligibility for Black students in the state of California. And the undertone is that is because these assessments are racially biased and discriminatory. And how they were used, they were discriminatory because they were placing Black kids in special education classes, while other kids, it, they were being used to separate people, which is completely discriminatory yeah so that's the, the supreme court case that went all the way up um, to to the supreme court but that's a thing that's it's not a california thing we use the same damn assessments as they do right it's not like that's some weird california assessment that nobody else uses so it's it's just kind of a mindset as school psychologists that we have to understand these things are not built for everybody right i mean and and that's that's one case. There could be ones for different cultures and different ethnicities. And we just have to understand yeah. that when we go into assessment. Um, but it's it's something I think about all the time. Like, am I doing right by the am I am I doing right by Byron McClure, the student that I'm working with right now? Right. Am I giving right. him the best opportunity? But that's where that critical thinking comes in, right? Like assessment, any school psych worth or worth can do assessment in their sleep, right? But what are, what are we really getting paid for? And in my mind, it's the collaboration, consultation, and the critical thinking that we provide for a school, you know? And then I also think having tough conversations with people, because I think that's always a hard thing to do, to, to call Mr. McClure up and who is maybe worried about their child who may or may not be on the spectrum and have a conversation that's reassuring them, but also being honest with them, right? And I, and I don't really use the term special needs. I think it's important that we use the word disability when we speak about things. So I think it's important to start working away from that stigma and not use the euphemism because it's, 
you need to have all the right information, but it's always in the back of my mind as if I'm doing right by this kid, you know, and, you know, as a Polynesian cisgendered male, you know, I, I don't, there's ain't very many Polynesians in San Antonio, Texas. So it's not something that comes up very often, but I do work in a district that's incredibly diverse because it's a military district. So I got people coming in from all over the world with all different languages, which now throws a whole nother freaking wrench into the right. damn thing, you know? Um, right. I don't know where we're going with this. I think we're just both just venting at this point, but, <laughs> you know, but I, but I think it goes back to diversity is incredibly important. Now, for students, for you as a black male, and for students who are black as well, did you feel like they were more open to having conversations with you and the parents? Because I feel like that's sometimes where we have hindrance. And I'm not saying black parents, 100%. I'm just saying parents in general. Yeah, 100%. And I, I'll say black parents, and I, I'll speak for myself. Like, that was something, you know, where they might have been harmed because they've had psychologists in the past who didn't take the time to understand their kids, to understand uh, their economic situations, to understand, you know, that they might've just been on hard times. And like, that's why their child was acting out or having a tough time or was struggling to read. And because I come from backgrounds where my kids are from, because I look like them, I can connect. Like there's just a, a connection um, on a deeper level and to be fair like I, I as a practitioner I whether it's the black kid white kid whoever if I'm working with them I'm going to take the time to connect with them and understand but the reality is like students who look like me like there's oftentimes I'm able to connect with them with their parents just through that that share you know culture that that we have which is important um, there might be parents who are hesitant to work with the school system or, you know, go through the, and on the East coast, we say IEP. I know in Texas is art. It's art. Yeah. But, but it's, right. It's right. Thing. We're Texas. Yeah, we got to do everything right. different, man. <laughs> <laughs> everything different. Um, but helping them navigate that process and they, they might be a little bit less reluctant. But the other thing I wanted to say about that is, you know, even as a black man, like I had to be aware that I, if I'm not careful, like I can fall into this same system, right? And like, I don't want people to feel guilty or, you know, if you're a white female listening to this, like, no, like we all have to play our part. And for me, like I was administering assessments that weren't relevant to my kids. And like, yo, that was a problem. And I had to wrestle with that. And it took me doing some deep reflection to, to really understand that, man, what's funny one time, so I'm from Maryland, right? And so Maryland, we're known for like our seafood, for crab. We have the seasoning uh, that we put on our seafood called Old Bay seasoning. I've I've seen it in store. We have it in Texas stores. I've never used it, but I've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> and we put Old Bay on everything. Oh, it's good. You put that, you put it on everything. Yeah. And so there's an assessment that I won't say, but it has a question and it talks about obey and it asks like what is obey and like our kids will say it's seasoning, seasoning. most people will mark it wrong yeah but i'm from maryland where whether i was practicing in maryland or dc i would give my kids the correct answer for that because that's a cultural thing yeah. right and that's indicative of the dmv the dc maryland area but it's a cultural thing but because i understand the culture like oh yeah i'm giving you two points for that all day in the paint like because yeah. i get it 
I know you, you, I know what you're talking about, man. We're good. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I say that jokingly, but also to stress the importance of having that cultural uh, humility, the ability to understand um, in our assessments, in our practice. That's that's important. And you don't necessarily have to be a black male or, you know, working with black kids. You just got to make sure that you're putting in the work to understand those things and take them into consideration. But you had to step back from yourself and your practice to understand that though. That's the thing though, yeah, right? And you had to absolutely. critically you had to critically think, all right, these kids could be getting, I mean, it's two points, but that's two points. In our in our world, that means something, you know? And right. it's and it's it's something that I think is incredibly important going forward is understanding our assessments and to whatever fault of whoever's making them. No fault to everybody, but they were made in a certain way and we just need to have that understanding whenever we give these assessments academically as Absolutely. well, you know, and uh, you know, like I, I, one, one thing that's important. So I was trained on the Stanford Binet. You familiar with the Stanford Binet? Yes, sir. We have one, we have one <laughs> that, that we use as a doorstop. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah. It's there. It's there. I've seen it before. That's hilarious. Let's I usually keep it move it out of the way style. to grab something behind it. So, <laughs> but look, so I was trained in the Stanford Binet, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm using this test as a practitioner. Like I'm working with the kid. I get to the the review of test meeting, and like it just never set right with me. And so I went on this rabbit hole of researching the Stanford Binet and like I uncovered like the real history of mm -hmm. the Stanford Binet and I talk about it in, in my book Hacking Deficit Thinking but that critical reflection piece that you're talking about and again I'm stressing I'm a black man and I didn't understand it and so I had to put in the work to understand the true origins of this assessment and how I whether willingly knowingly or unknowingly was directly contributing to disproportionate practices by administering this assessment. And if I wasn't conscious of that, and if I didn't change my practice, I could continue causing harm to young people that I work with. And so like, if you're listening to this, like you might've been doing some things that, you know, you think is right. And we're a school psychologist. We all have gone through training programs. But I'm challenging you to do the critical reflection so that you're bringing the best version of yourself to this work and engaging in practices that are meaningful, especially with diverse students. Also, well played putting the book right behind your head so we can see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I see right that. There. there you go. Hacking <laughs> Deficit Thinking, bestseller yeah. on Amazon. Check it out. Let's talk about it. And, and for all of our listeners, I don't want you to think we're just actively ignoring his book. We're, we have a future episode coming up with Dr. McClure and Dr. Reed where we break down the book and talk about everything Hacking Deficits. So we're not ignoring it. And Dr. McClure already knew this going into this one. So yes, <laughs> we're having a whole episode on it. Okay, so. I think there's also another kind of um, something that we both have that's a little bit another cog into our wheel as practice because you're a father too, correct? Yes, I am. Yep. So, so how do you think that influences things? Because it did with me, right? Before I had a kid, I just did my job, but now I'm like, all right, I need to put myself in the feet of like these parents now because now I can actually my my eldest son is four years old now so he's of the age where he's in pre-k and like he is of the age to be assessed for things if i if we had concerns so it has kind of 
changed the way I approach parents and, and changed the way I approach my interpretations with parents, because I'm trying to put myself in their shoes as parents of like, all right, I'm hearing this information for the first time. And I, and just for full disclosure, Byron, obviously I'm a school psych. My wife is a BCBA. So we're all, we're all in our world, right? Like we know, we know our things, but these parents don't. And these parents have to navigate things without having any type of knowledge that like we would have, like you and I would have about the school system, the education system. And I know you touched on it about some of the systematic racism of schools and education with different parents and being burned before on things. But now being a parent, does that also change the way you do things? Absolutely. And as a parent, you know, if I were to go into a meeting and I'm picking up on microaggressions or you know, people talking at me, if people making decisions for me. Or even walking to a room with eight other people who all have their laptops up. And like how intimidating is and that? They, they right? immediately go quiet as soon as you walk into the room. Yeah. It's, you know, am I really welcomed here? Mm-hmm. And if this is the sense that I'm getting, how is my child feeling? And, you know, I've I've talked about this. My daughter, she has some speech difficulties that, that she's working on and she's getting speech services now. So I have three kids. I have a 10-year-old, uh, 10-year-old son, seven-year-old daughter, um, one-year-old son. I know. Congratulations on the one-year-old. I got a four-year-old man. and a two-month-old. <laughs> Oof, man, we got some conversations about that. Yes, sir. <laughs> um, but yeah, so for, for my daughter, like, you know, I I can imagine, like, if I were to go into a school, like, she's getting outside services, but I can imagine going inside of a school and hearing people talk about her, like, man, now I'm I'm going to be, I'm going to have my guards up, I'm going to be ready to fight, and, like, I, this is, I'm coming from a perspective, like, I've been in education, like, my wife is, she's a vice principal, she was a special education teacher for a very long time. Same boat, you and guys know like, the world. We know the world. And knowing the world, like it's still difficult being on the other side of it. And so it's really helped me even more so to listen to the needs of parents. Like that is so important to make sure that what they're saying is validated, that their voice is being heard and letting them know that what you say, what you're seeing, what you're experiencing like it's valid and we're not going to dismiss it. And importantly, man, you gotta, you, you, you have to, I believe that school psychologists, we can't just be school psychologists delivering bad news. Yes. I believe that we must be in a position to give people hope and inspiration. And imagine now Texas, we're sitting in art meetings and parents we're giving them these are all the things that your child can do if we get these things these areas okay we're struggling here but if we put these things in place your child will be able to be here your child can thrive and your child will do these things and your child are these things now we're giving parents hope and inspiration and now parents are like hey like i want to be part of this and now they're going to pour into their child and so, you know, that's that's really shaped my perspective and my approach even more so. And I, I did that a lot, but I'm just consciously aware of those things um, yeah. even more so now as a parent. And I, I, I had to serve myself some humble pie after having a kid because I know early in my career, I was very, I wasn't negative, but I was very negative focused whenever I would go over yeah. assessments, right? 
we would talk about where they're lacking, where the gaps are, things like that. And I had to kind of like how you were talking about before, I had to kind of step back and be like, all right, like, all I'm saying is like all the things we need to fix, like, what do we not have to fix? Like, what can we utilize? And it kind of, it helped me kind of reapproach the way I talk to parents and how I'm like, you know, Byron, we're going to use your kids' strengths to make up for those weaknesses, right? Let's kind of look at where those gaps are and let's utilize those things they are good at. And we can, I even try to tie it into their ARDS and their IEPs and their accommodations. Like this kid's got a great memory skill. So let's, how can we use that, you know, to make up for maybe some poor problem solving skills. But I think it's, I think that's very important. And I I know I'm just talking about academics, but behavior wise as well, right? Our children on the spectrum, they have great memory. How can we use that? How can we use a kid who remembers every little thing that happens, Mm -hmm. right? We can use that to our advantage to help develop behavior and social socially appropriate things you know and we don't have to try to fit these kids into a box let's make them let's help them make their own box right let's get them to where they need to go but i i i really i feel like i really got better about that after i had a kid and i was like man like chris you gotta let up man because you're i mean it wasn't like mean or anything but i could just hear myself and i'm like all right let's let's try saying something really nice and let's try being let's let's be let's be different you know, and I, yeah. so that was kind of something I had to deal with myself and I struggled with a lot. Yeah. And focusing on growth too, right? Like, Absolutely. this is where your child, because we're psychologists, like we're dealing facts and stats and data. Okay. This is where your child is, but we can prioritize growth and we could put things in place. And then what that also does is it makes you accountable for after the assessment is over. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's important too. And I always try to encourage parents because I would want somebody to be a partner with me as yes. a parent to help me navigate this world. Okay, I have all this information, all this data about my child. Okay, so now what? Well, okay, now we're going to do A, B, C, and D so that we can see growth and move your child from where they are to where they can be. And I'm going to help you every step of the way. Yeah. I think it's very important for school psychologists, just because of everything that we're involved in and what we know, we have, we have training in aspects of like a thousand different things that we are the leaders on a campus in special education, especially, but just in general, right? Like I, I don't just work with sped kids. I mean, I don't work directly with gen ed kids either, but I work with gen ed teachers all the time about how are we going to help these kids get better? How, how do we make it so I don't have to assess these kids, right? For whatever thing that we're dealing with, behavior or whatever. But I think that's very important for us because we know things. We know things. You're trained in so much stuff, right? Like, Absolutely. use that knowledge, you know? How and many kids like, are you testing a year? Oh, Byron, you don't want to know. Last year, I did 140. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. One, four, zero? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. So I've heard uh, two elementary it's... campuses and those include reads too. I should say those are not initials only. Those are initials and reads. But two elementary schools. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what? are we getting into the ratios? Let's do that. So both of my elementary oh campuses my have a thousand plus kids. Okay. And we got pre-K three and pre-K four. So those kids don't go through child fine, um, which is not an issue. So I do all the AU evals on the campus too. And that, I mean, that's not adding 30 kids, but that's adding more than what I would be doing. A thousand per campus. Mm-hmm. And we are, we're a very good district. We've had, we have 24 school sites in our district and we haven't, 
lost anybody in the past four years. We've only gained people. Okay. And we're adding on another one on top of it. And so if we're talking ratios, ratios should be one school psychologist for every 500 students. So it seems that's, you know, double. I'm a little bit off. Yeah, a little bit off, right? (laughs) Um, But even still, so you're talking about, whew. And it's hard. It's hard to try to be everywhere. And and so here's here's the funny thing, Byron. I, we switched it, which is nice. And now you're interviewing me. Um, I've had right. to, like, I have to put my money where my mouth is. Like I have a podcast I talk about. I'm I try to be somebody who's you know very helpful and like progressive in our field. But I have to actually do that now. So I don't get to like so to be like a member of our campus. Tomorrow we're having a really fun day, a science day. It's an all day thing. So clearly I'm not going to pull any kid. I'm not going to be that guy. I don't want to be the one that's pulling out those kids from all those fun events. So I'm going to be an active member. I'm going to be helping out. I'm going to be volunteering my time. My wife works in the district too. Um, She would love to come out there, but as a BCBA in our district, she's got stuff to do. And that sucks, you know, that she can't come and participate. But now that's an active choice I'm making. So again, it's a philosophy thing. And I know people will disagree with me on that. And I'm perfectly okay with that. I just personally think I, I, that's what I want to do. That's it's my choice. Nobody else's. Yeah. And I, I think that that is where advocacy and policy becomes important and shout out to, to Dr. Uh, Kelly Valancourt. She is the director of policy for NASP. And one of the things that she talks about um, she recently did something um, with, I, I want to say, I forget who it is, so don't quote me. Yep, cool. And one of the things that, that she talked about is we need 63,000 more school psychologists. Byron, I was talking to a professor and he told me we would have to double the amount of school psych staff in universities to get even close to that. Wow. And that's wow. that is an insane thing because... And I'm sorry, you're going to go back to your point. I'm sorry. It just made me think about because like, I don't want to work in a university. I don't want to do that. That's not what I want to do with our job. But you have to convince twice the number of people we have right now in universities to do that. Yeah, man. There's a lot of work to be So much work, Byron. Why are we doing this? (laughs) (laughs) Because someone has to do it. That's true. That's that's my my stance is, you know, someone someone has to do it. And, you know, I've worked inside the schools for a very long time. And now I, I see that I don't want to be, a, I don't just want to complain about it. I want to actively do something. And at least at this stage of my life, I think addressing it has to be done outside of the system. So, but we need people inside. We need people outside. We need people uh, inside and outside. We need people across <laughs> all angles if we really want to make some meaningful change. Well, thank you, Byron. You got my segue for me. So let's talk about what you're doing now. Right. You transitioned yeah. out of the schools. I'm going to ask you, what's your job now? Because <laughs> we know you travel <laughs> a lot, right? We know you're traveling the stage. You're doing these awesome, badass presentations. But what what is going on between that? Besides you just writing books and shit and stuff. Right. What's hilarious? Like I, I talked about my, my identical twin. It was like, dude, like, what do you do? Yeah, what are you doing? Because <laughs> like, I feel I'm like a school you psychologist. <laughs> I'm a, a non-traditional school psychologist. I promise I work. I promise I have a job. Um, <laughs> and so... I was inside the the school system for 13 years. I transitioned out. Um, before I transitioned out, I actually, so this is pretty cool. I actually got to redesign a high school for two years. And what? so school transformation work. 
It's amazing. The school was on the verge of being closed down. I was elected to be part of a team to redesign the school. I was the assistant director of redesign. And my focus was on SEL, culture, and climate, transforming a school using innovative practices. In the midst of that, again, I saw a need of social-emotional learning and meeting the SEL needs of kids, so I created my own SEL curriculum. The SEL curriculum is called Lessons for SEL. Mm-hmm. The pandemic hit, and my curriculum was doing very well because it was digital. I had Perfect. YouTube videos, and it filled a need. And because of that, the right people found it. Um, This guy who, he sounded like he was a radio like host like, <laughs> yeah like he called me out of the blue and he was asking me all these questions about my company lessons for sel and i thought it was the irs and i was like you know what thanks i'm not interested um but his name was scott schickler and so he um he asked me if i was interested in, in collaborating and partnering with him and ultimately uh we worked out a deal to where my company lessons for sel was acquired by a larger company called Seven Mindsets. And so as part of that acquisition, I merged. And now I'm part of the Seven Mindsets team. And I serve as the director of innovation for Seven Mindsets to where a lot of the work I was doing inside of schools, redesigning schools, SCL, restorative practices, culture and climate. I get to do that at scale at the national level. Um, I'm taking my company lessons for SEL. A large part of what I do is still working on lessons for SEL um, curriculum, um, helping to meet the needs of kids across schools everywhere. So I'm not just, you know, in, in one small part of the country on the East Coast. I'm everywhere, which is a really cool thing uh, to be able to do. Also, I have the book, Hacking Deficit Thinking. So I'm an author and I get to travel and speak to school psychologists, educators across the country about best practices and how to make a difference in the lives of young people. That's really awesome, man. Does all that travel weigh on you? I mean, being a, that I don't mean that as a native question. I was just thinking, like, honestly, like, I mean, no, you that's do, a real question. You travel a lot and you're not gone for a day. You know, sometimes you go to conferences. Like, does that yeah. kind of does that weigh on you at all or what? Man, that's a real question. And, you know, people like probably, especially in school psychology, because school psychologists don't do what I do, right? Mm-hmm. Which is like, we need to talk about it because we can do this. Yeah. And then- I don't have your next book. We speaking, need to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> we need to talk about it. Ah, I like that. That's actually cool. Let me write that down as a yeah. note. Um, but then, you know, people, they'll see the speaking engagements and the glitz and the glamour of it. But like I said, I have three kids. Yeah, And it absolutely takes a toll, um, especially when your kids are like, you're traveling again. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's tough. And so I'm I'm still in my mind relatively young and trying to strike that balance. So, yeah, and well, it's hard. I mean, even being part of the task board, you know, we meet every quarterly, but for a full weekend and like I got young, young kids. So like going away that's not great. That sucks, you know? And like, if they get sick and all, and then it's a lot of reliance on my wife to be, to be a badass, you know, mother to our children and just kind of hope for the best. <clears throat> but I know you do travel a lot and sorry, we'll get away from the negatives. Let's go back to the positive stuff. No, it's, it's real stuff that people I'm sure want to hear about. And like, yeah. how do you balance it? So I, yeah, I don't think it's negative. I think it's real. 
I mean, it's, I think it is. I think that's a fair question. Like, how do you balance it? I think I, I'll say this, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. But I think a benefit is you are not working in a school, so it's not like I'm writing reports on the road, and and you may be writing reports, but like I don't like with my 140 kids. Like, like, you know, I'm probably bringing work with me to kind of do that stuff. But I think that helps. But still, there's other things that you're doing that kind of play a part in that. So how do you balance it? Yeah. And it's a difference. So it's it's different. It's not not writing. Yeah. yeah, I'm not writing psyche vows and reports. But but now, like (laughs) we're talking about onboarding schools and ensuring that entire school districts like have access to digital platforms and curricula and that's a like lot. It's, it's you don't learn that in grad school. And, <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, there's budgetary things. So it's, it's, it's a different set of needs. But for me, you know, my, my wife, she's been great about it. Um, I moved to Houston. And so her family's here. My wife is from Houston. And so she's able to, her family's able to, to provide support um, and help, you know, when I am traveling and on the road and, you know, we try to put in systems um, as best we can. Uh, one really cool trick that I have uh, when I travel, because I, I go to so many different places, I bring back gifts. Nice. And so, Lessons you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's a cool thing. And so like I, my kids will have stuff. I got one of the cool trips I took. I went to Nova Scotia, Canada. And so Ooh. I brought some gifts from Canada. And yeah. so the excited about that so little things like that help along the way all right so not destination as far as like a conference because i don't want to hurt any associations obviously it's task feelings right. <laughs> but what is your what was your favorite city to travel to oh okay separate from whatever you were presenting at i like nova scotia i i have to say um i went to louisiana nice <laughs> and shout out to to Amber, um, to to the entire board at LSPA, and they took me out to some authentic oh, Cajun. Well. Like, listen, and don't be saying that say, to me as a board member of TAS who didn't do any of that <laughs> stuff for you. <laughs> like, I'm just letting you know, you know so, Chris. Louisiana hooked me up. <laughs> they, hey, I, I'm just saying they they hooked me up. It was you talk about authentic. I was I told Amber, I was like, look, y'all know I'm a black man out here. Where y'all taking me? It was no street lights. Yeah. We took a wrong turn and yeah. we, we were supposed to go to the next entrance. I was like, listen, let me call my wife. Let me tell my kids I love them. Yeah. I know what y'all got. Y'all take me out here. Turn on my phone but, tracker. <laughs> <laughs> we hit a U-turn and then literally we walked up into the restaurant. It was beautiful trees. Walked up and it was raccoons just sitting there chilling. <laughs> like, hey, what's up? It's like, just their life. What's going on? Like, hey, you and, must be new here, sir. <laughs> but it was authentic. It was amazing. That's so that awesome. was that was pretty cool to visit. And believe it or not, San Antonio. Yes, sir. Thank you. Love San Antonio. Love, love, love. That's my favorite part. I have not been to Austin yet. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going for my birthday. And one of my goals is to uh, perform at South by Southwest. Or You're going to perform. It's going to be a performance. You're talking about hacking present. deficits okay. or you're singing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to turn it into a show. So nice. that's yeah. my goal to make it to, to South by Southwest. Um, haven't been to Austin, so I can't speak on it. But San Antonio, hands down, is my 
one of my favorite cities. Yeah, all four. I mean, as much as we kind of, you know, rag a little bit on Texas, all four major cities and a lot of other smaller rural areas, they're phenomenal in Texas. You find so much little nice little things. I'm in a doctoral program in Lubbock at Texas Tech. So I drive from San Antonio to Lubbock and I drive through all these beautiful little towns and cities on the way up there. And you're like, man, there's just so much. Texas is so big which is an issue, but it is so freaking big, man. There's You can find great things anywhere. All right, guys. So we are getting kind of towards the end of our episode here. And we always kind of finish the episode with like some rapid questions, quick off the cuff stuff. But before we get to that, Byron, is there anything you want to kind of leave us with, you know, to kind of just inspiration or whatever, or whatever you want to say, your last words, but not in a bad yeah. way. Yeah, <laughs> last words, Um, you know, in a, in a positive way. In a positive way, we- man. You know, we can be the difference that we want to see. And I believe that school psychologists, like we have so much on our plates. We do so much. But now more than ever, especially in our current climate, like school psychologists, like we have to be the change agents. Mm -hmm. We have to expand our role. And I know we're comfortable in our little testing bubble, but our kids deserve for us to bring our full selves, to expand our role so that we can actually make a meaningful difference in the lives of young people that we work with. And I'm in Texas now. So you all, y'all are going to be hearing from me. I'm excited to be part of the Texas family and being able to to advocate um, and lend my voice here in Texas and, and hopefully make a difference. Well, we love you and we're glad to bring you and have you on board with us in the state. Also, whenever you Google your name, you need to get them to change it away from author to school psychologist. But that's (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to have to go Google myself and see what comes up. That's Oh, oh, I've never Googled myself before. (laughs) All right. This month. (laughs) These these should be right off the cuff. First thing that comes to your mind. Some of them are not even that. Some of it's just a little bit fun stuff about you too. Okay. All right. So what was your... What was your job right before a school psychologist? My job right before becoming a school psychologist, yeah, I was a tutor, not a tutor. I was a counselor for Upper Bound. Oh, that's interesting. What was your first job ever? Your first like my paying, first job, job ever? Not this like here's twenty story. bucks for mowing my lawn. No, 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 no. My first job ever. Um, I played sports all through high school, and so like that was like my job. But then I was like, let me get a job. Yeah. And I worked at KFC <laughs> for two weeks. Oh. No. Did you fire only two weeks. I didn't get fired. I quit. And yeah. here's the reason why. When I played sports. But the biggest reason I quit, I got my check. Like- <laughs> my check was $16. <laughs> and I was like, what, like, what is happening here? Like, like what? I, I just put smelling so like chicken. Time. Yeah, I was like, nah, I'm out of here. Like, I'll yeah, catch sports. y'all when I when I get older. So I, I was out of there. So. Well, you've you've come a long way, Doctor McClure. Let me tell you. <laughs> All right. So, you, so the next question, ironically, is about sports fans. So obviously, you are. Who's your favorite team? Who do you follow? And what's your favorite sport? I root for the home team. So all things Wizards. Uh, gotta go with the football, the Washington football team, the commanders now, commanders. right? Back in the day, <laughs> yeah. it was the, the Redskins when I was growing up. The Nationals, um, the Nationals are relatively new. When I was growing up, it was the Baltimore Orioles. So right. um, 
but I, I have to root. And I know that's hard being in Texas, right? Y'all might look at me like, yo, yeah, a I'm a, fan I'm a 20 Commanders year, fan. I'm a 20 year plus Kansas City Chiefs fan. So we actually have a little connection because now you have our old offensive coordinator, Eric B. Enemy. So yeah. <laughs> random fact I lived in Overland Park, Kansas for eight months in eighth grade. I met Lonnie Johnson, who was the oh. tight end for the Chiefs, and he became a family friend. We got to go to Arrowhead. 50-yard line so good. and watch a game. My wife and I, up Amazing. until recently, when we had these children, we, we went every single year to a football game. So it's nice. we, it's a huge thing for us. She's a convert. She wasn't even a football fan before we got together. We've been together since high school, but now she's a convert, cool. and now she's a hardcore Kansas City Chiefs fan, and we're raising our boys right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Do you have, like, a weird food combination you like? A weird food combination. So I'll share this with you. I'll be from the DMV. Chicken wings and mambo sauce. Chicken wings and from the chi- and mambo sauce. Chicken wings and mambo sauce. Mambo sauce from the Chinese carryout. Okay. You got to get a half and half. And I came to Texas, and I would I would tell people, "Can I get a half and half?" And they would look at me, wow. And they would put in like one lady told me she put like sweet tea, and then the other was just like unsweet tea. I was like, "That's just tea." It's like, <laughs> what is that? So. In the DMV, a half and half is this big gallon, like huge, this huge plastic container, and it's half sweet tea, like the sweetest tea you have, half lemonade, but that has to go with chicken wings and mambo sauce. The perfect combination right there. It's a perfect meal. It's a perfect meal. <laughs> yeah, welcome to Texas. We're different. <laughs> All right. Uh, what's a weird, obscure thing you're talented at? I create websites. Oh, that's interesting. That is new. That's very unique. You know, you feel like you're very competent at it. Yes. I create websites. (laughs) So check out some websites I've created. Uh, I did the BSPN website. So BSPN Inc. I I did that website. I did the uh, Strength Based Collective, which is a work from Kelsey and I. I'm most proud of that one. I think aesthetically, like that's one of the best ones. Yeah, I know a little bit of code. I told myself a little bit of code. I went after it. I did the lessons for SEL website, which is under construction now because of the merger and acquisition. But I did that when I have my own website, ByronMcClure.com. So, yeah, <laughs> so it's all, myself. It's almost like websites. you become great out of it, out of just pure need of I need a website. So I'm just going to teach myself how to do it. I went to YouTube University. Yes, and the best at it. Yes, yeah. <laughs> that's right, it. Uh, that's right. That's awesome. All right. So if you could interview anyone, alive or dead, who would it be? Fred Hampton. That's a good one. Yeah. I would love to. I'm just in this space, especially <laughs> with State of Our Nation. Mm-hmm. I would love to get his thinking on the best course of action. And really understanding, like what it means to be a revolutionary. We are a revolutionary. That's a great line yeah. from the movie, right? Yeah, that was a great. That was a great film. And Daniel Kaluuya is a phenomenal actor, and I thought he really brought a bit of essence to that role in Gravitas that I think only he can bring. And it's Amazing. it was a powerful film, and it's a the story behind it is very it's very sad. With like Lakeith Stanfield's character, which I can't remember the character the character's name, but 
because people had to do that. People had to do that in an era where it wasn't popular. Yeah. And now, like, with our country, like, we have some tough decisions that, that we have to make. And, you know, I would love to have a conversation about, you know, how do you stand tall in the face of all of these things, even when it's not popular? You know, he's a great speaker, too. So good. Yeah. So good. Yeah, that, too. That was a great answer. All right. I'm going to try to segue off of a deep answer like that to what is a pet peeve of yours? <laughs> I should have left that. I should have put the interview one at the end. <laughs> right. A pet peeve of mine would be like people smacking like that. Just I don't know. Like eating. Why. Yeah. Eating like maybe because yeah, I, I don't know. I got to think That's for like, mouth breathers, you know, like <laughs> like like. Come on, we got you can you got other things to use, man. <laughs> All right, final question, Byron. What is a family tradition your family had when you were growing up that you feel like is important, or maybe you still do to this day? We talked about uh, Kansas City football, right? And mm-hmm. so they just won the Super Bowl. Of course, so family tradition that we always have huge meals, family friends over for Super Bowl Sundays. And every Super Bowl, we will have uh, hot tamales, chili, and cinnamon rolls. And so oh, that's just that, the, that's the kicker at yeah. the end. <laughs> so I actually answered the two questions. That's a, a favorite combination. That's a food combination. I've never had yeah, tamales yeah. and cinnamon rolls. <laughs> and the tradition that's 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 big for us. So. That's awesome. Well, you know what, Byron? I think those are great answers. I wish we could go longer, um, but unfortunately, not. Ooh, let me rephrase that. Which would go longer, but fortunately, we both have families and we got things, yes. right? <laughs> yes. So good catch. We're going to end this episode, but we're having Byron back on later on this season to kind of talk about his books with Dr. Reed and kind of have some other badass conversations with him. But first, I want to thank you, Byron. You know, you're, you're an inspiration to a lot of us in the field, a lot of especially newer people, and I hope the older people as well. And I just want to know that your words are not we listen to what you're saying, you inspire us and you motivate us and you help us kind of push forward in this case, in this world where we have 140 cases and kids that we got to assess, right? <laughs> but that's the real deal. So that's the real life and this reality of it. But we still need great people like you in this field to kind of help us move forward. Um, to all of our listeners, thank you for listening to us again. Make sure you follow all of our social media channels, Facebook, Instagram at TXASP where we can get all the up-to-date information on what the board's doing and what kind of things we're up to. Um, make sure you fo- not follow us. Make sure you share us. Make sure you rave or rank us. Make sure you give us good reviews because that's why we do this. We don't get paid to do this. It's all volunteer, but it helps when we hear good words and good corrective feedback. Um, and for anybody else that's listening, thank you for joining in with us today. And for everybody, make sure good choices. Hey everyone, Kia here. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode with Chris and Dr. Byron McClure. We do want to provide a quick clarification about the discussion of the Larry P. case. In today's episode, Byron mentioned the Supreme Court during the talk of Larry P. The Larry P. case was originally heard in the Northern District of California's federal court and was later heard by the Ninth Circuit Court on appeal, not the Supreme Court. If you would like to learn more about the Larry P. case, we're going to link a great episode by the podcast Radio Lab that digs into the history and the present of the case, including an interview with Daryl Lester, a.k.a. Larry P. himself. Thanks so much for listening, 
and make good choices.